go ahead and get started. We are in 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1. Reading from the New King James Version. I want to thank everybody for being here. For those who will join us later by podcast and YouTube. Let's begin with 1 Timothy, chapter 4. We'll just read verse 1. And we're only going to go through the first eight verses. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Who gave the warning here? The Holy Spirit did, right? We could say that Paul did through the leading of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit, because he said it's expressly the Holy Spirit who uh, spoke this, and we don't know if it was a revelation from the Holy Spirit as Paul is dictating this letter, whether it's a spontaneous word or perhaps he might even be quoting a prophecy, a previous prophecy that had recently happened. But it is the Spirit, I mean, those the Spirit still speaks, right? The Spirit still speaks to us. Well, many times the Spirit will warn you. Have you ever been getting ready to do something or uh, maybe even driving down the highway? I've had times where I was driving down the highway and I felt like I needed to be super cautious for some reason. And sure enough, something would happen in front of me or beside me. And I'm like, oh, I'm glad I was alert, right? Because the Holy Spirit had kind of warned me. And so we can have the Holy Spirit warn us in various ways, speak to us. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I've never audibly heard the Holy Spirit speak. Some people will say that they have, and I'm not disputing that, but we do get premonitions or, uh, you know, things will come into our spirit that we just know it's the, the Lord that's speaking to us, the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Here the danger that the Holy Spirit is talking about is about the latter times. I believe we're in those latter times. Amen? What the Bible speaks of, we're seeing happening right now. We're seeing all of this. And the first danger that he talks about, he says, some will depart from the faith. Not all, but there'll be some that depart from the faith. And what that's really talking about is apostasy. In other words, they go off to do their own thing. They're not following biblical principles and precepts, uh, but they're being led astray uh, or choosing to go astray. And so it says here that in the latter times that some will depart. I believe we're seeing that in many ways in our in our day and time. The second thing is that you see that there will be deceiving spirits. Deceiving spirits. There are former angels, which we refer to now as demons, uh, who will try to deceive people. And these are spiritual beings. They try to deceive Mankind to go in the wrong direction away from what God has already revealed in His Word and by His Spirit. So they're deceiving spirits. And then the last thing He talks about 
is the danger of false teaching. You can interpret that as doctrines of demons. So there's people departing, there's deception, and there's uh, false teaching that are going on. And we see that all the time. Sometimes uh, now I'll just shake my head because I can't believe that people are saying this is right and this is wrong when we were known all along that this was right and that was wrong. Anyway, some will depart from the faith. So how does this apply to Timothy? Timothy is to be the pastor of this church that Paul is now out and he's in other areas and he's doing things and so he's left Timothy in charge and in order for Timothy to be a good minister, he needs to know the truth. Sunday we talked about that we're to be the light of the world. Well, what does the light do? It reveals truth, right? Uh, if it's totally dark in here, I could tell you that I have on a pink shirt. And you wouldn't know the difference. But if the light came on, you'd say, well, Pastor, that's a green and blue shirt there that you've got on. So light reveals the truth. What Timothy is being told to do is to stay with the faith, the doctrines, and not get separated from those. The faith, when he says some have departed from the faith, those are those essential Christian teachings, and people are abandoning those, abandoning those, and going into other teachings, either teachings of men or teachings that are demonically inspired. And so, or it should be both. The deceiving spirits are demonic spirits. There are angels who have rebelled against God. That's what a demon is, is an angel that's rebelled against God. What that demon does, or that demonic spirit does, is it tries to pull people away from God. That's what that uh, here is talking about. You might have the question, Pastor, what kind of demonic doctrine, you mentioned that, might a demon be teaching or be professing? You see an example of this in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. This is what the serpent told Eve whenever he was trying to convince her that she ought to eat the fruit. So what he told her, she said, hey, God said if we eat this, we're going to die. She had been told secondhand that, by the way. Adam had been told that, and then Adam relayed that information to her. It never says that God told Eve. It says that God told Adam. And we talked a little bit about that last week when it comes to men being the spiritual head of their houses and, and households. So the devil told her, or the devil speaking through that serpent, or the demon speaking through that serpent, said, you will surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So that is one of a de demonic doctrine. And we'll see that, you actually will see that still being in place at times. The devil will try to say, well, God doesn't want you to 
understand this or see this or do this type of evil because uh, when you do, then you're going to be, your eyes are going to be opened up spiritually. Uh, and what actually will happen is exactly what God said, is that we die spiritually when we disobey God. So those uh, are deceiving spirits present there at the Garden of Eden. Uh, but can I tell you, I believe the closer that we get to the latter times, the, the more active the enemy is in trying to deceive people. So, if you were in a boxing match, we see this, and it's third round, and then it's going to end at the end of the third round, and there's 30 seconds left. What does the losing, the boxer who's losing, what does he do? Turns it up. He tries to make a difference in those last 30 seconds or minute or whatever it is, uh, and I believe that we are seeing the enemy currently uh, doing that now. I think that, you know, here we see the lies of the devil. And was a, the Bible calls the, the devil the father of all lies. And if he has demons, then they're going to be telling lies too. I mean, those you you learn what to do from your father. It's important for us to see in these last days in particular. Let's read verse 2 and 3. So the nature of this departure, this embrace of this demonic doctrine says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. They're speaking lies so that people will willingly embrace the falsehood, sometimes without the help of the devil. People want to do their own thing, so they'll speak falsehoods or lies to support the sin that they want to do. Have you ever seen that happen? They'll say, oh, this isn't wrong because uh, speak something way off base. And they're claiming to teach the Bible, uh, but what they're really doing is teaching their own false doctrines. What does it mean to have your conscience seared? Any ideas? So you get to where you can't see the truth because you believe a lie so long. Okay. Heart. Anything? Anybody else? A seared conscience. Anybody like to cook steaks on the grill? Don't you like to eat them, right? One of the ways that you cook a steak is you get the fire super hot. And then you almost, not quite, but almost burn it on both sides and you leave the juicy stuff in the middle. Now, some of you wouldn't like a steak like that, but that's what searing is about. Their conscience, here's what it means to be seared. If at one time your conscience would have bothered you to do it, and now it does not convict you, then you may have a seared conscience. Okay? Now, sometimes we're incorrect in our thinking. We've, we've learned that maybe 
what we were taught was just handed down by man. It wasn't God's commandments. But if it is a commandment of God and we've departed from it, it means that we've somehow reconciled with our conscience that either it's okay or God will forgive me. Here is, that's what they're calling a seared conscience, uh, is that at one time it convicted you, and now it doesn't. Paul, who wrote this to Timothy, probably knew a few things about a seared conscience. Let me notice what Paul was doing before he was apprehended by God and saw this great light is that he was persecuting and having Christians killed. Now he thought he was right and justified in persecuting Christians and actually hating Jesus because he thought that this was some caused Judaism to have impurities in it. He probably felt completely justified of all these actions, but imagine after he does get saved, wow, you know, there's a there's a change of mind. Uh, but he acted, I believe the Holy Spirit was dealing with Paul before he ever got saved, before he ever had this encounter on the road of Damascus and the reason why I say that is we see Paul later on when he's talking about what he used to do. One of those things that he mentions is holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. I believe, and here's Stephen doing nothing but telling about the goodness of God and how God loved his people and they needed to repent and turn back to God. Paul saw, saw all of that. And I'm sure that his conscience, for a while, I believe that the Lord was dealing with him before even the road to Damascus in a great light. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. Why would someone teach to forbid to marry and to not eat foods, certain types of foods? Want to put bondage on them? Uh, that's, that's one, I mean, that's the purpose of the enemy for sure to do that. That is a, a legalistic teaching that we see here. And what I mean by legalism is that it's a teaching that if you'll obey these man-made rules, then somehow you'll be justified before God. I'm not talking about God's actual commandments, but how many knows that God didn't forbid us to marry? Right? It's not a teaching in the Bible. As a matter of fact, in Genesis, the one time that God said what he created was, it was not good was whenever he noticed that Adam was alone. God did not command us to not marry. He also did not command us not to eat certain foods. I don't like certain foods, but God didn't command us not to eat certain foods. As a matter of fact, is it Peter? that the sheep comes down, he's up on the roof, he's praying, seeking God, and the sheep comes down and it's filled with all kinds of animals and meat that would have been considered unkosher for a good Jewish person to eat. And God tells him to eat it. 
And of course, we know it is also symbolic because what happens is after this happened, was it three times that that sheep came down? Then Peter comes down off the roof and Gentiles show up at the door. We know that Gentiles were considered unclean to Jewish people, right? It was not a commandment of God to abstain from certain foods. As a matter of fact, God said, I've given you everything to eat. Even in the garden, he said, I've given you everything to eat. He said, all of these herbs, all these fruits, all these vegetables, even all the animals, in chapter 9, I believe, that is a legalistic teaching, and essentially, it is an attempt by mankind to follow certain rules and work for their salvation. We know that we don't work for our salvation, right? God gives us our salvation by grace through faith. Historically, especially the Catholic Church, there were many monks and many religious people who would go to a desert place and they would not only not eat food, for long periods of time, but they also would torture themselves, believing that somehow this would make them closer to God. That kind of reminds me of Elijah, whenever he calls down the fire, and those prophets of Baal are screaming and shouting that to their God to call down the fire, and he won't do it because he can't, because he ain't really a God. And they're cutting themselves, and they're bleeding, and doing all those kinds of things. Because it's not of our effort that God uh, saves us. Within that legalism, it's almost like people are saying, look how good I have been, God. You owe me salvation. And that's what a legalistic mindset is doing. They don't even realize they're doing it. But they're saying... Can I get old-time Pentecost on you? Uh, they're saying, because my hair goes down to my backside, and my dress goes down to my ankles, and I don't have any makeup on, then God, I've been so good, you have to save me. Like, you know, like as if we earned it. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being modest. We're, not, we're certainly not saying that. But what I'm saying, there is a difference in modesty versus legalism. Those are things that the enemy wants you to do. He wants you to be legal, legalistic. Forbidding to marry, even when the Bible says it's not good for men to be alone. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving or it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So here, Paul is telling Timothy, anything that you want to eat, God, it's good. You shouldn't refuse it. You can receive it with what? Thanksgiving. I mean, thank the Lord for your food whenever you, you sit down, right? Uh, we should thank the Lord for our food. Let me caution you that try not to make that a ritual. 
trying to make it a good habit. You know, he knows the difference, right? We should be thankful for our food, but it shouldn't become repetitive and saying necessarily the very same thing all the time with no real heart in thanking God for our food. So we can receive with thanksgiving, gratitude for the Lord, for the blessings of being able to have food, and have our shelter and our comfort. And so we, we don't have to refuse anything we can eat for our health. Uh, maybe we shouldn't eat quite so much, but we can eat anything. And I say that of myself. There's not there's a reason why sometimes I don't tuck my shirt in. Sometimes it's because it's trendy, and sometimes it's because my belly's too fat and don't look good. Uh, so <laughs> we we need to, to understand uh, that. So how is your food sanctified? Two things: the word of God and prayer. The emphasis is, is on asking God to bless the food thanking him for it, but also that we can eat what we want to because God's word says we can. In other words, I'm not bound like a Jewish person would have been to not eat pork. I love me some good sausage and bacon, you know? Uh, I like pork chops. Matter of fact, my favorite meal is barbecue pork chops with uh, Broccoli casserole and some mashed taters. Now that's some good eating right there, right? But we need to do our eating in moderation as well. You probably shouldn't only eat pork. You probably eat some chicken and some beef and uh, all of those kinds of things. Seafood, yes, absolutely. So those scriptures that I talked about where God uh, sanctifies our food through his word, one of them is found in Genesis 129. I'll just read that real quick, but you can uh, note that if you want to. He says, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Every, and then Genesis 9 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. God's provided a way for us to be able to eat. Thank the Lord. Verse 6. Now remember, Paul's talking to Timothy and saying this. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine which you have carefully followed. So what's going to make Timothy a good pastor? Teaching others, teaching them the things that Paul is instructing him, right? I'm teaching you this, Timothy. I'm reminding, maybe Paul's already taught Timothy, but he's reminding him, and he's saying, if you'll teach these things, then you'll be a good minister. The primary, I'm not saying he's the only, but the primary ministry of a pastor is to teach the word. That is the primary ministry. Now, many do other things. Some work secular jobs. I'm blessed that I don't have to at this point. Some help out 
on the worship team and play instruments and do all those kinds of things, but the primary, that's what I want to tell you, the primary necessary thing that a pastor needs to do above anything else and put his concentration on it is to teach God's Word. Teach God's Word. And if you instruct the brethren in these things, then you'll be a good minister. If he doesn't do that, the, con the inverse of that, the converse of that is that he won't be. You might have a pastor that is really good at many other things, but he needs to concentrate his efforts on teaching and preaching to remain in the Word of God and to follow good doctrine. We don't mention the word doctrine a lot, but we have doctrines of our particular denomination, but we also have doctrines that are, uh, and hopefully they're all in the Bible, that maybe we don't... <laughs> fell out in our particular list of doctrines. Uh, but we're to know those and to live by those, more importantly, than just to know them and to live by them. All right, let's read verse 7 and 8. So he said, you need to teach and you need to follow good doctrine. Now he's going to say what you need to stay away from. And he knows that living a good Christian life isn't just doing but also it is abstaining sometimes from certain things. So he says, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So, He's saying you need to reject, reject. The Bible tells us that we are to draw nigh to God and then we're to what? Flee from the enemy, right? Now, this is a similar uh, concept. He's saying draw near to God, be godly. That's the verse before. Now reject Profane and old wives' fables. What are old wives' fables? For instance, the Bible never says that cleanliness is next to godliness. It never does. Now, I don't really, really like to be around dirty people, but the Bible doesn't say that, right? I'm not saying it's a bad concept, but I'm saying that it's an old wives' fable. There are other things that uh, so the words of man, not focused on the scripture, it's man's best effort to give wisdom or knowledge. But how many knows that sometimes even our best effort to give somebody wisdom and knowledge that we can be incorrect? I always appreciated that our pastor, Brother McKinley, many of you knew him and uh, many of you grew up under him. He didn't often just spout out what he thought. He would say, well, let's go to the scripture. Let's look and let's see. And that's the wisdom of, you know, knowing the scriptures and being able to find that and find those and how they apply to your life. So here Paul is telling Timothy, notice they go together. Concentrate on the word. 
Not the word of man, the word of God. Live your life by the doctrines of the Bible, not by people's best advice. Right? But by God's best advice. So exercise yourself toward godliness. During this time, uh, how many of you have seen the old, it's almost like a, a wreath around somebody's head, uh, and they had those athletic games. They had ancient Greece uh, had, and Rome had these uh, a great emphasis on physical exercise. I mean, they would, uh, that's where marathons and things like that came into play, come through that culture, uh, and still active today. Paul's not saying that exercise, physical exercise, has no goodness about it, but he's saying in comparison to exercising spiritually, the exercise physically is very little good compared to spiritual. It is good to stay physically fit and to exercise, but it's better to work or physically or exercise towards godliness, not work, but to exercise towards uh, godliness. And how many knows that bodily exercise is good for a while? It's good while you're here on the earth. You're still just as dead as the person who was totally unphysically fit. What never passes away is when you exercise towards godliness because there is an eternal reward and benefit that comes from that. Uh, it's exercise towards godliness for all of eternity. So godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of life that now is. So some people may think I'm going to do whatever I want to during this life. And then when it comes time for me to die, I'm going to give my life to the Lord. Number one, you don't know you're going to make it to that point. Number two is here, Paul is saying to Timothy that there is value even in this life to pursue godliness. You're going to benefit in this life from it as well. We're going to benefit in this life from striving and exercising towards uh, godliness, but also in the eternal sense that we will have an eternal reward in heaven. Pursuing godliness is, is not about your get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying you pursue godliness and you pursue, in order to pursue godliness, you pursue God, who is the God of godliness, right? Uh, and so, and it'll benefit you in this world, but it'll also benefit you in heaven, right? In the eternal. And not just in heaven, uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're set as, as uh, in the millennial that will come back, the Bible says that, to rule and reign with the Lord. And uh, so we're to pursue Godliness it is our uh, only guarantee of being profitable in the life that is to come. So let's go through the questions that I handed out. So the first question, who gave the warning expressed in verse 1? 
the Spirit did. There are three dangers that will mark the latter times. They're all found in that one verse. What does it, what does it say? What's the first warning, first danger? Some will depart from the faith, right? Number two is there will be deceiving spirits. Number three is that there will be doctrines of demons. What is the first demonic doctrine mentioned in the Bible? And I can give you the scripture text there. It was a deceptive, lying uh, spirit that said, you're not going to die if you disobey God. And they did die. They died spiritually at that point, and they died physically later on. For God knows that you will, uh, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Describe a seared conscience. Conscience no longer convicts. That's correct. Question five. Why would those who departed from the faith teach against marriage and abstain from abstaining from certain foods? So, and they are they are deceived in believing that if I live by this man-made rule, then God will almost have to justify me. Question six, according to verse four, how are we to receive our food? With thanksgiving. Question 7, according to verse 5, how is our food sanctified? Word and by prayer. According to verse 6, what would make Timothy a good minister? Teaching others what they've been taught, instructing them in, in the things that he's been taught. Verse 7, what was Timothy to reject? Profane and old wives' fables. Verse 8, according to verse 8, what is Timothy to pursue? Godliness. 